Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting, home of the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, Flight School. MIPS Flight School helps clinicians earn their highest possible MIPS score in a group coaching setting and at an affordable price. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're talking with Dr. Uchenna Ume, or otherwise known as Dr. Lulu, the momatrician. Dr. Lulu shares about her path and passion in pediatrics and how the death of a young patient shaped what would ultimately become a professional decision to provide direct care for pediatric patients to prevent suicide. Let's take a listen. (laughs) My name is Dr. Ume, first name Uchen and last name Ume, but I do go by Dr. Lulu, the the momatrician. Because like I said earlier on, I just realized that a lot of people were mispronouncing my name and I'm Nigerian. So if you don't know this, generally we in Nigeria, we're fairly anal, anal about our names and how it comes out and how you say it. Because if you say it a certain way, it might mean something else. And also because we usually carry a long generation of names, like it's my great grandfather's name. So it's important to me that it's said correctly or whatever, you know? So over the years, people just were not using, were not saying it correctly. And I started wondering, how do I fix that? So I came up with Lulu, which are basically my initials. And um, I used that in high school and now I just trademarked it. So I was born in Nigeria and I am American nationalized. I did naturalized, excuse me, and I did, I went to medical school in Nigeria. I did residency here in, at Harvard University Hospital. And then I did, of course, I did pediatrics and I started my own practice literally soon after I graduated from, from residency. I didn't know what I was doing, but I had something called a J-1 visa 
I don't know if you guys are aware of it, but essentially it's a student exchange program kind of visa, whereby when you're done with your residency or your program, you're supposed to go back to your native country or from wherever you come. And then if you're not able to, if you're not, not if you're not able to, but if you don't go back or if you choose to stay, then you basically have to go to a, maybe get a job in what they call a health professional shortage area or a place where there's a need for physicians and then you can get quote unquote forgiven <laughs> and then you can stay, you can stay on. So that is basically it's in a nutshell. So I went ahead and did my residency, finished my residency and I couldn't get a job in a health professional shortage area fast enough <clears throat> for my visa to not expire. And so I decided to start my own practice, which was extremely, extremely scary. But, you know, you put on your big girl shoes and you do what you got to do. So that's what I did. That's what I did in essence. I started my own practice in the state of South Carolina and I have not looked back. <laughs> I know we said I went from one patient and at the day, I think the day we closed up shop, we were like at over 10,000 or more. I mean, just a lot of patients that we had to find homes for when we were leaving. But yeah, so I absolutely love what I do. I'm a pediatrician all day. <clears throat> I usually tell people that if you cut me, I will actually bleed a mixture of pediatrics and red blood. That's how much I love being a pediatrician. So hence the word mamatrician. So it's spelled M-O-M-A-trition. And that's kind of kind of how um that's the story of my life <laughs> so far i love that i love that so when when you were opening up your own practice did that what happened with the visa did that sort of become a non-issue no no it doesn't become a non-issue <clears throat> I, I might have missed okay it doesn't become a non-issue in my case i couldn't find a job i.e an employer in an in a health professional shortage area i couldn't find one I had gone and interviewed at the health department in, I want to say Fayetteville, North Carolina. Then I did the health department in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is Mecklenburg County Health Department. And while we were already in the Carolinas, we went to visit a friend of ours, my ex-husband's classmate from high school, who happened to have a practice in a very, very rural part of North Carolina. So he was like, well, if you don't get the job, you can always work with me or for me. But he was an internal medicine doctor. So the plan was, okay, I'm going to work with him, but as a pediatrician. And then I, it just didn't fit. But while we were driving around, we were like, this place is so rural. I bet you we can find, you know, a place where we can start our own practice. Because you have a time limit. I think it was like October. So I graduated in June. And I had to like October to get a job or I'll be what they call out of status. And then you get into legal stuff. And I just, I didn't have the English for that. So I was like, no, we're going to do what we got to do and do it fast. So we just happened. We just got kind of got lucky. There was another gentleman who had started a practice in a very small, tiny little town called Heath Springs. And the beauty of Heath Springs is it had its own zip code. It was like, 
two stoplights. That was the size of the, of the, of the town. Literally two red lights. And that was it. It was that little. If you blink, you pass the town. But it had its own zip code. And as long as the city has its own zip code or the town or village in this case has its own zip code, it can sponsor you for a waiver. And then we just happened to get lucky. We walked into the city, the, the city, what do they call it? The town city hall. And we met the mayor. She was just sitting down, just chilling. I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. And she was like, oh my goodness, this is awesome. We don't have any doctors in our little town. <laughs> and I'm like, what? So talk about luck meets divine intervention or whatever you want to call it. The universe was like. Yeah, serendipity. <laughs> Yeah, so it was like a small town, and she was like, we have one doctor who happened to be a Nigerian. Like, what? <laughs> I'm telling you, can't make this stuff up. And we went to meet him, and he was also, he's also Igbo, which is my tribe. And I was like, I cannot believe this. And then she was like, wait, it gets better. We have our old health center. We can donate it to you, to your practice. And then you don't even have to build a place I'm like, what? I mean, I really literally did not believe it. I could not believe it. It was too much. So we went to the health center to look at it and I set foot in the building and I just had this feeling of like foreboding. I was like, no, I don't know. I don't feel, it doesn't feel right. And then later on, we found out that it was, because I asked, I said, why is it, why is everything duplicate? You know, there was one on this side and one on that side. And whatever we have on this side, we have on that side. I was like, what is it? said, oh, in the old days, they had um, the white people on one side and the black people on one side. That's how old this health center was. And I just didn't feel right. And I was like, I don't know if I want to have a practice in a place that had segregation inside of the health department. So anyway, but across the, the, the health department was a plot of land and she just called this guy who owned the land and the guy was like, yeah, sure. You want to build something? You can. That's how small the town was. Like everyone was willing to help and we just, <laughs> and the rest is history. But yeah, I've never told that story, believe it or not. <laughs> that really is incredible. And even like you said, to have the other Nigerian doctor from the same tribe and just like you said, in such a small town on, you know, really a smile and a handshake to say, yeah, go ahead, go do that. Yes. Um, so you say the rest is history, Dr. Lulu. I've read that you were also in the Air Force. We know you're a mom yourself and you're doing some really amazing work and writing books specific to teens and, you know, focusing on mental health, especially for teenagers, you know, through pediatrics. Tell us more about, you know, what you say the rest is history. We know your name very well, but <laughs> tell us more about what you've done since opening that practice and making it a success. Yeah, so we ended up growing into two locations and and um, like 13 employees. And then I think it was March of 2008. I had this patient of mine come to see me with his mother. He was 15 and his mom was worried that he might be doing drugs. She was like, I want you to check him for drugs. And we're just going to call him and hell, you know? So I was like, I want you to check on hell for drugs because I, you know, he's just something, something really bad going on. He was the quarterback and he just didn't want to play football anymore. He didn't want to do the stuff he used to like to do anymore. And she wanted to make sure that, you know, everybody just like, it must be doing drugs. So when I, I had a one-on-one -on -one with him, 
And then we did something called a PHQ-9 is a modified depression screening. And I ran that by him and he scored a 23 out of 27. So he was severely depressed. And I, I was shocked actually because I'm like, what? So I called his mother to the side and I said, this is what's going on. She was like, oh, just depression? Oh, honey, that's nothing. I had depression. My mother had depression. My whole family had depression and we all did okay. He's going to be just fine. I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, he's quite severe. And so she said, well, what are we going to do? I said, well, there's medication, there's counseling. Counseling? Oh, no, no, we're not going to do that. No, 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 no. And we're definitely not going to do medication. He's going to be just fine. And I say that almost lightly now, but of course it wasn't light. She left and he never got medication and he never got counseling. And four months later in July, on the 4th of July to be exact, during their family barbecue for the Independence Day celebrations, he walked into the front lawn and put a double barrel shotgun and pulled the trigger. And that was it in his mouth. And, and that was it. He was, I never saw him again. His mother came to tell me, just broken and just, I see her till to this day. I see her. I remember that day. Just, it was not good. Not good. He was an only son. Then she had a daughter and that was it. And to this day, I, of course, I ask myself, maybe if I had pushed harder, maybe if I had tried harder, maybe if I had said something differently, but nobody can see the future. And with time, I've learned to forgive myself for, for that and use his memory, you know, to help others. But even as that happened, it was like, oh, this is a sentinel event. It's just one thing. It's just one child. It's not going to happen again. Even though before him in the year 2000, I did have a very, very, very good friend of mine who was a surgical resident. She was my first suicide, period. But that was in the year 2000. She was a friend. She was a colleague. It was a little bit different, even though her death put me in, in preterm labor for my now 19-year-old son. But, you know, you just don't think that, you know, it's just the one thing. And then she wasn't a patient. And then this was a patient. But again, I was like, it's one thing. It's just one child. And over the years, by the year 2012, I sold the practice. I joined the Air Force. I was the medical director right here at Lackland. I was commander at Maxwell Air Force Base. I was still a pediatrician. But then I started noticing and just... I became more aware of the fact that, wait, there are more and more kids coming to see me, cutting and suicidal and depressed and anxious. I'm like, but it must be the military. You know, their parents are divorced. It's a hard life. It's not, I guess it, no, not that happy. Their parents are not, their parents are deployed. It's a hard life. It's not, um, it's not, it's just the military, you know? This has got to be the military. But when the time, when my time was over and I, I was honorably discharged and I went back into the private practice, I joined a huge group practice here in San Antonio, just ginormous. We have 13 locations. And don't you know, regardless, there was nonstop, even more so, kids cutting. And I had the one girl one time who had written all over her stomach, just cut, 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 cut. I had the one boy who had slept for 36 hours because he had taken his friend's 
mother's bag of Xanax. I had a kid that jumped from a, a six-story building and just nonstop, you know. None of these kids died. But last year, last May, I had a, a seven-year-old boy. That was my youngest kid. He came to see me and he had attempted to hang himself twice. I was done. I was like, okay, that's it. Something's got to give. So I asked my colleague, my other doctor, I said, how many of these patients with depression and suicidal behavior do you see in a month? You know, he was like, I don't know, two or three. I'm like, what do you mean two or three? He said, oh, I don't get too many kids that are depressed. I see two or three kids a day. And then my nurse was like, doc, is really more like four or five. I'm like, really? So we kind of settled on three, but it was like on a daily basis. And eventually one of my patient's mom said, maybe it's me. Maybe I have a healing spirit. I was like, what? What's that? But she said those words and I wrote my first blog that was called Doctors Remember Your Why, I think, something like that. And I got, I know, like 526 shares or more now because that's been over a year, just amongst doctors. Because I needed to remember my why. Why did I go into medicine? It was to help people, to help whoever needs help. And then my then 13-year-old son, who is now going to be 15, said, Mom, you can come to my school and talk, you know. You can come and talk to the kids at my school. Because he was like, what are you going to do? I was like, I don't know. He was like, well, you can come and talk to my kids, maybe, to the kids in my school, maybe. So I was like, okay. So once I started speaking, I spoke at his school. Then I started speaking at other schools. I was like, wait, you know what? Maybe that's what I'm going to do. So I essentially asked my job if they could give me one extra day off, just one day off. I'll work three days or four days or whatever, but I need a day off to, to try to maybe start speaking at schools about this thing that I noticed, this pattern that I noticed. And after three weeks, they came back and said, no, we need you full-time. We can't afford to do part-time. And to me, that was like, that was it. So I put in my two months notice and I quit. And they were like, wait, you're, you're making $200,000. A friend of mine said that you're making $200,000. What do you mean you're quitting medicine? He's a doctor. And I was like, you're not a counselor. You're not a therapist. You're a pediatrician. He said, counselors and therapists want to be doctors and you want to become a therapist. I was like, no, I don't want to become a therapist. But if, you, if I have to explain my reason to you, then you've missed the point. I need to get to these kids where they are. I need to get to them before they come to me and you or heaven forbid, before they get to the morgue or they're hanging from a belt. And so that's how I started, you know, talking about it. And once I started talking about it and writing about it and blogging about it, on almost on a daily basis, people started sending me clips about kids that have been bullied, clips about kids that have died, clips about kids that have been, you know, suicidal or that have suicided, which actually is a word because I didn't know people who have died by suicide, people who have killed themselves, because the word commit suicide is actually incorrect. We now know that it was when suicide was considered a crime, but not anymore. Even though there's still a huge stigma, the word commit suicide is no longer favorable. So we say suicided, we say died by suicide, we say completed a suicide attempt, but we don't say commit suicide. So I was like, what? And then I noticed kids were younger and younger and younger. And the youngest documented child in the world 
who died by suicide was five in China. The youngest oh my gosh. children who died by suicide in America were six. They're not too far away from the five-year-old. Two girls, unrelated to each other. One black and one white. Both died by suicide. They both hung themselves with their jump ropes, ironically. Just to kind of tell you. And when people say, the last time I gave a, a speak, speech in June to a bunch of doctors, one of the guys was like, one of the doctors asked me, he said, how is it possible? He actually had an attitude-ish. What do you mean that seven-year-olds are killing themselves? Like, like, like I was the one doing it. And I, I had to tell him that there was a recent study that showed that four, five, and six-year-olds actually understand the permanence of death. They understand that when their pet fish dies, he's not going to come back. That when their grandma dies, she's not going to come back. They completely understand the concept of death. What I personally think they don't understand is that this act will kill me and I will die from it. And as you can imagine, kids that used to play the choking game, for instance, a lot of times it was a game to them. They didn't think that they were going to die. But one of the number one sources of death is asphyxiation from this choking game, which I think one year we had over like 1,400 kids that died by suicide. In fact, and by, with the choking game, in fact, this year, as of June 18th this year, we had had 1,600 boys aged 14 to 25, I think, who had died by suicide, and 1,200 girls as at the middle of the year. And those are only the reported cases. As you and I know, majority of suicides are not reported because of the stigma, because of the pain. And then when it's a child's suicide, even that much more. So I dare to say that even though the WHO states that 800,000 deaths per year by suicide, which is one every 40 seconds, I challenge that number because that's only the reported cases. And so in children, the population that I take care of, the reported numbers are so staggering that suicide is number two, second only to accidents. Now here's the catch. If it's secondary only to accidents as the cause of death in the age 10 to 24, then I'm here to tell you that many of those accidental deaths we don't know that they were not suicides. So in effect, suicide is number one cause of death in children aged 10 to 24. And so I'm very thankful for little Angel for giving up his life for me personally to finally come to terms with the fact that there's a, there's a lot of work to be done. And of course, everyone has their passion. Everyone thinks their cause is the cause, but when it comes to life and death of a child, I don't know any better cause. I just don't know anything else that is more important, especially since we started school again in the last couple of weeks and the bullying will start again. And so most of my speaking is at schools addressing the effects that bullying has on depression and suicide in children. 
So I know I've been talking for a while, but <laughs> I can I can literally talk all day about it. <laughs> Dr. Lulu, as a mom of three, and especially as someone that has a teenager now, I am a daughter who's experienced some of the symptoms or some of the signs and symptoms of things you've talked about and addressed. Um, watching bullying even go on in elementary school age classrooms, people being teased, all these sorts of things. You brought up something earlier when you mentioned the military base, and I have family members, and my sister has children in the military. You, you referenced it being a hard life, that at one point in time, very early on in your career, there was a thought that maybe that kind of stress or stressors in that lifestyle were a, a common thread or a possible theme that could be contributing to that. As you sit here now, years later, as a mom yourself, all of the experience, I'm sure plenty of research as an author on the subject and someone that speaks professionally blogs about this, for all of our listeners that will hear this, for any of them that are parents, have loved ones, or no kids, and most of us do, is there anything when you talk about things for people to look for, or things people could be doing is there a common thread or common denominator or things you tell people to look out for or watch for or engage with people about that may be feeling this way? I think the first thing to look out for, believe it or not, is nothing. And I say that because we have a case of Miss Alexandria Volaros. She was a straight A student, high school senior. She was student council leadership. She was in music. She was in debate club. She was, her parents really honestly believed that they had a good connection with their daughter. But one night she made her bed and walked outside of the house and jumped off an embankment to her death. Her parents to this day had no idea that she had a 200 page journal that was full of self-loathing and you're not good enough and you're bad and you're awful and nobody hates and everyone hates you and you're just, you just need to die and all that. And so I say that because you can even have the most engaged child. What I tell the parents to do is be not afraid to ask your most engaged go-getter straight A a type A personality, does everything right, can a kid. Do you ever have feelings about hurting yourself? Would you ever consider killing yourself? I don't care if you think it's a random question. It's an important question to ask. I have a son. My son is 21. He was a guest on my podcast recently. And he took me into the world of his then 12-year-old self. He actually had suicidal ideation. Today he doesn't, but he did because he was bullied, because he was LGBT. He was ostracized because he was LGBT. And I only got to know about the bullying because one day he, come, he came home without his glasses. I'm like, wait, what? Where are your glasses, man? And then it came out that a kid, the main bully, had reached across and grabbed his glasses and broke them. Why? The kid said to him, when God was making you, he left you in the oven too long and you got burnt. And my son said, your maternal unit 
must be mentally deranged to have an offspring like you. Because of course my kid is a spelling bee champion and has all the big vocabulary. And the kid was like, what did you say about my mama? Something like that. Well, guess what I did? I sprang into mama bird action. I want the parents to hear me when I say, if you've spoken to the school about the bullying, you may have to take things into your own hands. I went to the child's house. I knocked on the door and I told his mother to come out so we can talk mother to mother. It's important that your child sees you as their numero uno cheerleader. Your kid is already not going to tell you that they're hurting. They're hardly going to tell you that they're being bullied. My kid didn't tell me. I found out because he lost his glasses. So ask them those hard questions. And you better believe that your kid could be the bully. I have three sons. One was bullied. One is the ultimate bystander. And one was a bully. So God has blessed me with these three children to help me teach that much more, that it can happen to me. It can happen to you. Because those bullies are people's kids. So when I talk about bullying, it is easier for your child to say, yes, ma'am, than for your child to say, mom, I need help. And I learned that from a friend of mine who just happened to have been a guest on my podcast. She was like, it is easier for people to say yes. As a matter of fact, I'm hurting. Or you know what, mom? I've been meaning to tell you, but I didn't know how to tell you. Or whatever. Then, mom, um, I'm being bullied at school. No, they're not going to. Open your eyes. Go into their room. I almost dare to say, snoop around if you have to. I think we, we pay too much emphasis on the fact that always oh, my child's privacy and I'm bordering on, in, you know, intruding on their privacy. Do you think Alexandra's parents would have wished that he found that journal before she jumped off the embankment or after? How much? Without a question before. Yeah, no, I agree. I, no, I don't no. subscribe to that. I think that's really important. And even what you're saying about you know, as teen parents, I think you have to get used to having difficult conversations about all sorts of things, good and bad. Um, and, and that's not an easy thing to do. But I like what you said, instead of just saying, look for nothing, asking the probing question. And unfortunately, you know what, people think that, and I know, and I know why they think that, because suicide is so extreme. So people think, oh, by asking your child about suicide, you're going to plant it into their heads. Now, that being said, there is something called suicide contagion or contagion, depending on whether I say potato or potato. Suicide contagion is a process whereby too much exposure over, over exposure to suicide can put the idea into someone who is already suicidal. But as a parent, as the mother of that toddler who grew up to become a, to become a 17 year old with smelly feet, as their parent, it is okay for you to start the conversation. And that's why usually I like to say, I, I would like the spark. I want to start the conversation because I want people to know that it's okay to ask them anyway. Majority of kids are going to be like, mama, oh my God, never good. Versus, well, you know, Sometimes. And then the next question is, well, let's talk about it. 
And you as a parent, even though you don't know what to say, at least tell her, okay, I don't know what to do, but I can take you to someone. But I just don't want people to say, it's not my child syndrome. They have that not my kid syndrome, or it will never happen to me.com. Well, trust me, my friend, my patient, Angel's mother, she never thought it would happen to her. All those kids that have died by suicide, which I, I can list numerous ones because I, I blog about them on a daily basis. None of their parents thought it would happen to them. Not one of their parents thought it would happen to them. We have seven-year-olds, we have eight-year-olds, we have 10-year-olds, we have 12-year-olds, we have 14-year-olds, we have the 15-year-old girl, I forget her name now, she's Australian. Her last post on Facebook was, maybe after I'm gone, the bullying and the racism will stop. I can't think of her name right now, but I'll remember it. She wrote that on her Facebook and then she hung herself. So people are hurting, but we're all busy on our phones. We're all busy doing things, you know, that we're busy, but you don't want to miss the sign. Dr. Lulu, are you starting to see, I mean, you probably have more insight into this than possibly anyone else. And it's not obviously just a couple kids here and there having so much exposure to what is going on and how the youth are feeling. Are you starting to see any major trends? Like, is it due mostly because of bullying or is it, you know, societal expectations or is there anything, is it, is it, is it potentially just like national PTSD from living in a crazy world? Like what is, is there anything you can point to that can help us understand why this is happening? I think it's a great question. It's multifaceted. Anything that has to do with human beings is complex by nature. Unfortunately, it's not an American problem. And I threw out the Australian kid because I wanted you to know that. He's in Australia. There was a Canadian girl who was wearing a hijab and she was bullied relentlessly because of her hijab. She was only 11. She killed herself. Nigeria, where I come from, suicide is on the increase, is multifaceted. But I think the easiest way to look at it is, and it's not only the cell phone, people just want to say, they want to blame social media. Yes, social media does play a role. As a matter of fact, there was a study that was done recently that was published, published on the Washington Post, I think, where they said that um, after 2010, when we started having our personal cell phones, the rate of depression and suicidal ideation in girls kind of paralleled the increased use of cell phones. So yes, yeah, cell phones do play a role in it because of course the not enough syndrome, I'm not good enough, I'm not pretty enough, and cyberbullying, true. But I dare to say, as a parent, I dare to say that if the families, if the family structure was strong enough, we would not have as many cases. And I say that because I know most parents are either in denial or they're also themselves hurt and dealing with their own issues. And so when a child is being bullied outside and the child comes home and tells their parents and their parents are like, I don't believe it, one, or how dare you tell me you're being bullied? Can't you go and say something to them? Or like Nigerians would say, we don't come from a place, from, from a family where such things happen or that's not my portion or you, you need to pray more about it or you need to 
you need more Jesus or you need to go to church more or you're faking it or, you know, it's not really real. What do you mean you're sad? You have all these things. Well, look at Hollywood, for instance. Look at Robin Williams. Look at Anthony Bourdain. Where's the lady with the, the shoe lady? I forget her name. Who died after Anthony Bourdain? Look at all these people. Kate, Kate Spade, thank you. Or, you know, it was the handbag lady. Look at all these people who are rich, quote unquote, who have it made. It's, cross, it's across the border. It's the rich, it's the poor, it's America, it's Nigeria, it's Kenya, it's Australia. It's everywhere. So it's also a sign of the times, right? You hear, we all hear news faster. So we can hear about suicides in Australia faster. But I almost want to believe that it's probably been happening in Australia this whole time. We just didn't have instant access to it, you know? So it's multifaceted. It's poverty. It's poor governance. It's racism. It's burst of the dot-com bubble. It's divorce. It's bullying. It's the cyberbullying. It's the cell phone. It's alienation. It's ostracization. It's parents that don't believe. It's parents that are hurting. It's the fact that bullies have also been bullied. So they are perpetrating the behavior. It's domestic abuse. It's rape. It's, you know, molestation. It's all of those things. However, charity must begin at home. So if the home structure is sound, I dare to say the kids can handle it better. They can because I know parents who have told me, like Angel's mom, who said, oh, it's nothing. And I know parents who have told me, thank you so much for telling me this. My child is doing better. Because the parents decided, look, we have to do something different and we have to do it now. It's not about you anymore. It's about your child. And I dare to say, how much is your child worth? How much is your child worth? For me, it was worth going to that woman's house that day and taking off my earrings and acting a fool. It was worth it because my child is a boy. His parents just got divorced. He is hurting. He just came out. He was forced out of the closet. I knew, of course, but his kids, his, the kids in school rat, ratted him out. Is that the word? And he was hurting. And I needed for this mom to know that this boy has a mother. And she's willing to come to your house and talk about it. And my son needed to know that his mom has his back 100%. And all parents need to do that. And it may not all play out that way, but sometimes it does. And I'm asking parents to wake up and say no to the bully, no to all of that, and yes to your kids. And you know the funny thing? I don't know if you ladies know about the, the bully inside your head, the one that sounds like you and talks like you and looks like you, that inner critic, the one that already tells you you're not good enough. Now we all have that. So imagine a child that's already being bullied externally because their clothes are not the newest clothes or their hair is not the newest hair or they're not blonde enough or they're, they're too dark or whatever, who also has that bully inside telling them that, yes, indeed, you're not good enough. Imagine that child. The first time they see someone like drugs, they're going to take it. Or the first chance they have of running away, they're going to run away. Or they're going to start, you know, giving you symptoms at home. My stomach hurts, my stomach hurts, my stomach hurts only on the weekdays. Why? They don't want to go to school because they're being bullied in school. You know, things like that. So, of course, it's a lot of things. And I know I do tend to go all over the place. 
but the, the thoughts just come in my head and I just want to, I don't want to forget. The truth is, it's all of that put together, but it does begin with the parent who is going to say yes to their kid and no to the bullying. Even if it means going to the school, like this mother in, I think in North Carolina did, she, she snuck into the school and spoke to the class about the kids who were bullying her daughter because her daughter said, yes, I want to kill myself because I don't want to go to school. And that's too much for any parent. So, Dr. Lulu, we, we ask all of our guests, and you are in a very interesting position because you have seen so much and experienced so much. But if there's anything that you could solve, if there was a problem in healthcare, that if time, money, resources were not an issue, if you could essentially snap your fingers and fix the problem, is there anything that comes up for you like that immediately you would fix? And what would your reason for that be? I would fix the time spent with your patient. Recently, when I started talking and speaking, people started asking me, well, where is your practice? Well, where is your practice? And I was like, I don't have one. Well, what do you mean you don't have one? I said, I don't, I quit medicine to talk. They were like, well, we want to come see you. I want my daughter to come see you. And so I said, you know what? If I'm going to start a practice, then I'm going to start a practice on my own terms. So I called the state of Texas and I asked them, can I see only adolescents in my practice? And I remember the lady said, ma'am, as long as you have a license and you're board certified, you can see only kids born on the 5th of May, 1955. I'll never forget that. And so what I did was I started, a di- I started a direct primary care practice, literally on the 1st of August. I started a direct primary care practice whereby the patients have direct access to the doctor. Now, to be able to pull that off, I cannot accept insurance. I cannot accept Medicaid because insurance and Medicaid dictate to me that I can only spend 10 minutes or 15 or maybe 20 minutes at the most with my patient. and Next, so with my direct primary practice care, I can spend an hour or two hours. I can see my patient on the weekend. I can talk to my patient on the phone. They can text me. Their parents can text me. They can FaceTime me, all for a simple, low price. And my son said, Mom, just tell them it's like Netflix for your doctor. So I said, it's like Netflix for your doctor. You pay your monthly subscription. (laughs) And you can watch as many movies or as little movies as you want. It's like a gym membership. For a flat fee, they can call me however number of times they want to. They can see me however number of times. And I only see six to eight patients a day. So I literally have enough time to spend with my patients. So the one thing I would want to fix is the time spent with your patients. Imagine a kid who comes in with abdominal pain because they are being bullied. And I only have 10 minutes. Well, guess what? If they are being bullied, two hours is not even enough to scratch the surface. And so I will say the one thing I can fix, and hopefully most doctors see that and recognize that, the number one reason for burnout in physicians is we signed up to make a difference in our patients' lives. We signed up to be there. We signed up to be able to do it, but we don't have time anymore. To see 40 patients a day When I was in private practice, I saw 35 to 60 patients a day. Sometimes we ask them to wait at home and then we'll we'll call them 
when we have a little bit of room, especially in the flu season. I mean, things like that. There's just not enough doctors to go around. That is true. But the few that are there are getting burned out. And as you know, we didn't even touch the fact that doctors have the highest rate of suicide of all professions. They say it's 400 a day, but that study was done in 1978. And I, for one, know five people this year already that have killed themselves. They are doctors. Wow. And that's just me. And you know, none of those people's family members want to say it was suicide. So I go back to saying, it's only those that I recorded. So 400 a day is not enough. I know it. And the thing about it is, if we could just change that whole HMO, managed care, CEO, all that stuff, I almost want to call it nonsense. I have a better word that starts with a B. But it's like, it doesn't make any sense that someone is telling you, you must see a patient every 10 minutes. Well, everybody doesn't have a rash that's a ringworm. Some people have a rash caused by anxiety, a rash caused by overdrinking or whatever, and their liver is failing. I mean, a lot of those things, you need more than 10, 20 minutes to tackle. And come back next week is not going to cut it because the patient might never come back. And, you know, you don't even have enough time. I used to see 35 to 45 patients at my last job. For how much? How much is my sanity worth, you know? And yes, they pay you a bonus, but really, is it all, is it all about money? No. So I took a pay cut and I looked it in the eye. I was like, to hell with the $200,000. Let me go save a child in the meantime, you know? So the time spent with the patient would be, my, for me, the ultimate thing to, to change in medicine today. Dr. Lulu, I think we need to have you back on in season four when we re-record to do a whole episode just on the physician aspect of that, not just the burnout and suicide and the stress you've seen and the colleagues and everything that's gone on. I think that is an episode unto itself. But I think when you think about that in the context of everything else you've shared in this episode, it's certainly something that cannot be ignored. And I appreciate what you're doing with the direct access, because as a mom who's had a child that's dealt with that, who's had risk assessments, that's needed more help. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it was a physician that took a little more time with us at a very difficult time in our life that while one of our children was very ill, was on a ventilator, we had a lot going on mm. that we weren't having those conversations. We weren't doing it, but it was a pediatrician who took some time, who gave us some information that pointed us in the right direction that is really, I mean, she's still a teenager, don't get me wrong. But as far as some of those bigger things, the things that needed to be tended to, the things that were about her, Mm -hmm. it really set us on a much better path. And had that not happened, you just, you know, you, you, like you said, you look for nothing because you never know. You never know. Um, Exactly. Um, I agree with you. I agree with the need to spend more time. And if you look at the fact that each physician has about, I don't know, 6,000 patients panel, if that physician dies, if that physician is taken out of the equation, that's 6,000 patients that don't have a doctor. And actually the number came up to 1 million when they did the math at 400 doctors a year, 1 million patients, 1 to 2 million patients lose their doctor every year. Can you imagine that? No, that's not, with everything else going on in the healthcare system in the arena, that's not sustainable. We already have so many shortage problems just organically. 
that that's not something that's okay. And it's not, it, it shouldn't be okay. And it shouldn't be ignored. And it certainly just deserves more, more time to address for sure. Yes, uh, Dr. Lulu, our last question. <laughs> okay. We... I, so I'm going to ask you, it's, it's, I'm going to make it a two-part question because I want to hear about your work too. We always ask our guests, what do you read, whether it's professional or personal, what do you read to keep up in what's going on or what favorite books do you like that may have had an impact on you? And then also though, maybe before you tell us your favorites or the things that really impact you or what you read, um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your books because you have one book that I know of, which is How to Raise a Well-Rounded how to raise well-rounded children, excuse me. Um, and it's really like a how-to series. So I know there's several of them. Maybe tell us about that before you tell us about your favorite. So thank you so much. And oh, by the way, I was going to say, I'll be, I'll be glad to come back in season four. Thank you for the invite. And my book essentially was a podcast episode. It was a um, Facebook Live episode. I realized that a lot of children that I see, a lot of parents don't even know what to infuse into their children like they don't know what to infuse and so my book is 16 different character traits or what I call principles that you need to feed into your kids when they are very very young when they're still babies one of them is gratitude for instance just the ability to to be to appreciate that you know you've got life you're alive you've got shoes or whatever you've got a roof over your head and being able to say thank you Thank you. So gratitude is one of them. Kindness is another. The reason why bullying is going on is that we're just not kind enough anymore. People are not kind enough. When somebody, when a child sees another child being bullied, rather than getting help, they bring out their cell phone and start videoing it, or they start saying, fight, fight, fight. Kindness is missing in the society, you know? So there's, there's a mindfulness, just being able to be present be aware and be non-judgmental. That is mindfulness. That's a definition of mindfulness. Being present as a parent, being present, being aware of what's going on with your child, being intentional about everything that you do, and also coming from a place of non-judgment. I'll give you an example. Imagine if your child is dating someone and you don't like, you know, you know, you don't like that guy, for instance. And rather than telling your daughter, I don't know what you see in him. Remembering very well that when you were a teenager, the number one thing you wanted from your parent was validation of whatever it is. You needed your parent to say, that's good. So you are saying, I don't know what you see in that kid. You right, of, right away put a wall. And then your daughter is going to be indignant and say, you know what? Because you don't like him, I'm going to date him or whatever, get pregnant, whatever. But what if you said, hmm, Susan, I don't really like Bob, but why don't you do me a favor? Teach me to love him. Tell me what you see about him. Tell me what you like about him. She'd be like, what? Wow, mom. Okay. Well, first of all, he's blah, 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 blah. And right there, you made a friend in your child, which is what you would have done if she was four years old. Mommy, 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 look at this. You're like, really? What is that? Well, it is da, 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 da at four. And then suddenly at 14, mommy, mommy, look at my boyfriend or girlfriend and like, what do you mean? You know, it's like it's the same child, but we just bring up this, oh, she's a teenager. She must be doing something wrong. And we wonder why our kids don't want to talk to us. You know what I mean? So there's stuff like being thankful, being kind, being mindful, being resilient, teaching your child resiliency, teaching your child perseverance, you know, teaching your child empathy and compassion, all those things that you should teach them. The fact that kids are not resilient anymore, that is true. 
We don't let them fall. We pad everything. We, we protect them from everything. They should fall. They should get a bump and a bruise here. They need to learn to get up and keep going. You know, all of those principles, there are about 16 of them, but those are the ones that I remember. My book is in on the other room. But yeah, those are the ones that I remember. Um, but just those, those building blocks, those things you want to teach your child. And I think, if I may say so myself, the book is funny because I, I put a lot of humor in it. But I'm also kind of talking at, at directly at the parents so that they will know it's, it's like a fifth grade English, really simple to read, but fun also. And I like the last bit of the book where I tell them that it's the same child that just grew up, is smellier, maybe hairier, maybe, you know, sweatier, but it's the same kid that, you know, that you, 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 you talked, you read to sleep, it's the same kid that, you know, you took to the prom, it's the same kid that is now grown up, you know, so... Just be that same mother you were. Just still look at the child as your child forever. And then maybe you won't judge them so, so much. And as far as what I read, honestly, I read a lot of Nigerian authors. And I just finished the book by Iwela. Last name is Iwela. And it's called Speak No Evil. It's about this kid who is LGBT by Nigerian parents. And just the fact that Nigeria is one of the countries where you get 10 to 14 years in prison for, for being LGBT and, you know, they call God and call God and call God some more. And then they turn around and they, are, they hate their own kids. You know, it's like they try to pray it out of them, things like that. It's an awesome, awesome book. I cried in the book. I laughed in the book. It was very, very good. So I try to read Nigerian authors. I read Chimamanda. I know most people know her, Adichie, who I, I got to meet last year and I'm just, last June, and I'm just so happy that I met her. You know, so I try my best to read Nigerian authors. I also read American authors, but I try to, because I'm a Nigerian author, so I, I want to I try to sound like them more. So those two, I definitely read. You know, thank you for sharing that. I actually just put your book on my, on my wish list. And I'm like ready to purchase it. I'm like, that's a great, good to know. I am just so happy to, um, to have that in my library. Well, um, you know, my second book is coming out next month, but it's about seven teenagers. It's actually a Dear Dr. Lulu. Um, I don't know the name yet of the book, but basically they're writing letters and telling me what they're, they're dealing with. And actually one of them did end up killing herself. But yeah, it's, it's six teenagers from different parts of the world telling me about teenage problems. And then I kind of address the problems and give statistics. And it's like a letter to me. I can't think of a name for it. So maybe you ladies can think of a name. <laughs> I'll ponder on it, but that sounds like it's very going to be very powerful and very needed. Yes, ma'am. I'm thankful. <laughs> Dr. Lulu, if people want to find you, if they want to work with you, if they want to see you and visit you as a doctor, or even just kind of connect with you online, where do you send them? What, what are your socials? So I'm on Facebook mostly, but I'm also on Instagram. And of course, I met, you, I met you ladies on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn. And essentially, Uche Naomi is, it will pull me up. But then one day my son pulled, wrote Uche Naomi and like 36 people came up. So <laughs> I am Uche Naomi, but I'm also MD slash MB8. So hopefully that will kind of narrow it down a little bit. I'm also Ask Dr. Lulu on Facebook and on, on Instagram. My website for my speaking engagement is called Teen Alive. And then my website for my practice is called youthhealthcenter.com. So teenalive.com and youthhealthcenter.com. But 
I'm pretty much Uchena Ume. If you put MD slash MBA, if you put Mama Trishan, that'll pull me up. If you put Ask Dr. Lulu, that'll pull me up. And um, yeah, so I'm available to speak at your school, at your church, at your civic function. I'll talk to kids. I talk to college students. I talk to parents. I talk to doctors. I'm going to speak in New York. I'm actually speaking to residents, at the psychiatric residents about youth suicide and, of course, physician suicide. But yeah, so I'm available. Just holler at me okay. right there. You're on all those different platforms. I know your information has been shared very widely. And I know um, I saw your information in a Facebook group. So I just want to say we're so impressed to spoken with you this afternoon, this morning. I just, I, I applaud what you're doing and kind of following your arrow, if you will, uh, to fulfill this work. And I'm, I'm not sure who, which, who was speaking when they said something about their daughter. I, I do do virtual consults and I can't see you as a patient because I'm not licensed in any other state but Texas. But if you ever have any questions, please feel free, just text me, have your daughter call me. My cell phone number is literally on my website. So it's not, it's, it's just call me, text me, whatever. If you ever have a question, I will be glad to, to, to try to tackle it. I do a lot of parents coaching also, one-on-one -on -one and group. And in my practice, I have teen support groups because I believe that teens speak teen, they don't speak adult. And so I, I'm very happy to, to talk to you and your child if you need to, whoever is listening to me for one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, no, this is Robin. I appreciate that very much. Um, Dr. Lulu, can I ask you a question? Yes, ma'am. Um, so I know you said, so essentially you, you are your own product. You are the direct resource of this new practice. And you just mentioned that you sometimes do group sessions. And I know you have the subscription or like the, um, the membership, the Netflix, right, for these services, <laughs> like your son said. Do you ever do group coaching across more than one state? Do the, does Texas allow you to do that at all? Or would you have to be licensed to deliver a virtual session? No, 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 you're right. That's a great question. No, for the coaching, I don't need a license. It takes us license to do that. It's not medicine. Technically, a coach is not a medical, coaching is not a medical thing. Does that make sense? So I, I yeah. coach my parents about their teenage behaviors, just how to understand their teenage behavior. And those who throw the Bible at me, I have a ready-made spill about how Jesus was a rebellious teen, and people don't believe that. And I say, you know, he told his mother, he said, Ma, what do you mean you're looking for me? Didn't you know I, I was going to be in my father's house? Didn't you know I was going to be about my father's business? And then he, he, as a young adult, he was like, Mom, it's not my time yet. And then she's like, just do whatever he says. And he changed water to wine. And then even as, you know, he was a regular teenager. And I think he probably dealt with some degree of depression because he used to go away to a quiet place a lot. Who does that except someone who needs to center themselves? In today's world, maybe he had depression. We don't know. So I'm just saying that people just need to be open-minded and not just think, oh, you know, it's only one way or it's only the other way. So I can coach you virtually as a group and I can coach you one-on-one -on -one if you live in Texas and can come to me. But yes, the answer is absolutely yes. I am going to share your link for the Parenting Your Teen program across all the moms groups then today. Um, we just recently moved, but there's several of them. I just think in reading all the moms questions and so many different things people have to say, I think so many people could benefit from this that it, I just, I'm going to share the link everywhere I can. That's awesome. 
Thank you so much. The patient, the, the parent coaching is, I think, like fifty bucks or something. It's not. It's nothing. It's not even anything bad. And like much, not bad, but like like a, a lot of money. And it's just really, I just, I want to know what your questions are, and then I'll tell you how to tackle them. Only because after thirty years of being a pediatrician, which is what I've been doing, but God has blessed me with three teenagers that just three different kind of people. You know, not teenagers anymore. I have two young adults, but three children. And my godchildren, and just over the years, my patients become my kids, and all of those mistakes that I have made, and my parents have made, and my own patients' parents have made, I've put together, and I'm able to help. And I don't know everything, but I definitely know enough to help you along the way. And I really appreciate that. I definitely appreciate that. Thank you so so much for your time today. I'm sorry we ran a few minutes over. Thank you. No problem. All right, ladies. Thank you so much. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of the day, okay? And if you're a parent, listen to me. Remember, parenting is hard. It is the hardest thing you ever did, but it's also the very, very best thing you can ever do. So go out there and be best darn parent. Peace out. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, doctors. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate the ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybirdinc.com.